Looking for a new source to inspire students, alumni, faculty, staff, administrators, and trustees of Jesuit works? Check out Jesuit Saints and Blesseds Spiritual Profiles, available now at jesuitsources.bc.edu. That's jesuitsources.bc.edu. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. It is great to be with you this week, Ashley, especially because we are talking to a hero of mine. Yeah, this is a big week for you and for Jesuitical and for me, because we are talking to Sister Jean. That's right. So I knew Sister Jean before she was a famous celebrity known for being chaplain to the men's basketball team of Loyola University of Chicago, which is right up to school. I am a proud alumni of Sister Jean's Tuesday Night Prayer Group. She has a new book out, and she was so generous with us, sat down with us, and shared many lessons from her life of 103 years. Yeah, it's a great conversation. And then in Signs of the Times, uh, we're talking about Pope Francis this week, and very two different stories. One, he's in the hospital, so we'll update our listeners on the state of his health. And then there is, of course, the Puffer Pope meme that went all over the internet last weekend. So we're going to talk to our colleague, Jim McDermott, about that. Yes. And then in, uh, as one friend speaks to another, we're going to talk about where I found God in jury duty. But first, we have a few words about our sponsor this week. Zach, I don't know about you, but I always get to this point near the end of Lent where I feel like I have not lived up to the expectations I've set for myself in terms of praying more during this season. Yeah, no, I it's we are rounding the corner. You can kind of ignore it for the first part, but it, at the end when Holy Week's kind of staring you in the face, it's like, oh, I really did not do what I meant to. And I always try to go back to when I'm having a hard time with my, my prayer life, I, I try to find things that are like guided meditations, things I can sort of follow along to, um, and also look for things that our traditions. And so for me, the rosary is exactly one of those things. Right. So if you're looking to deepen your prayer life at the end of Lent, we suggest that you check out the Daily Rosary Meditations podcast. Yeah. So Dr. Mike Scherschlicht is the host, and he is going to help you establish a daily habit of prayer, all while discovering the truths of the Catholic faith. It is the fastest growing community praying the rosary with family and friends around the world. And that's one of the beautiful things about the rosary. Like It's like the mass. It's a prayer that we all share as Catholics, no matter where we are. That's right. And on daily rosary meditations, each day there's a different topic that's explored. So it allows you to learn your faith in bite-sized daily portions while you pray the rosary. So join them every day for scripture, meditation, and a rosary, all in under 20 minutes. The meditations are perfect for your daily commute or your morning coffee. You can find them in your favorite podcast app by searching Daily Rosary Meditations or on the web at dailyrosary.net. That's www.dailyrosary.net. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sit through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So first story is developing and breaking um, just before we stepped in to record. So we're chatting on Wednesday, March 29th, a little after 3.30 p.m. Eastern time. um, We've got reports that Pope Francis has been hospitalized with a respiratory infection where he's going to remain for several days. And this has kind of developed throughout the day. Yes. So it was first reported that Pope Francis had gone to the hospital for previously scheduled um, tests. Uh, It then came out later that, no, he was taken from the Vatican in an ambulance to the hospital after experiencing chest pains. Yeah. And so the Pope has a personal health care assistant. This is the nurse that he credits with saving his life during um, an operation last year. Massimiliano Strapetti, he is always with him. And so Pope started complaining about chest pains and Massimiliano recommended that he go to the hospital. And so once he was there, they um, found a respiratory infection. And They so, have confirmed that it's not COVID-19. So yeah. we do know that. So this is a... It, I would say a serious story. I mean, anytime someone who's in their 80s and goes to the hospital, that's not not nothing. And so our prayers are absolutely with the Holy Father and with all the people responsible for his care this week. Um, And we'll be sure to uh, keep our listeners updated. 
And now for something completely different. <laughs> yeah, so that was that was real news. Um, in in some ways, this was fake news this week. You probably saw the image of the Pope in his uh, brand new puffer jacket circulating online. Um, and to discuss this, we're joined by our colleague, Father Jim McDermott. Jim, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much. All right, for the one or two people on the planet who have not seen this photo, please please describe what we're looking at. So imagine if the Pope was at the Arctic Circle saying mass. Like it's a he's in white, but it's this big like a puffer jacket. Uh, it's actually was made by Balenciaga. I think that's the original and like brand. Long, not just like, like a short. Word. No, no, it's very long, and it actually has like a. I'm gonna say cummerbund, but that's the wrong like a word. Cinched a waist. cinch, exactly. It looks like, and he's very got his pectoral cross. <laughs> it very much looks like. I guess this is what the Pope wears in the Arctic Circle with the penguins or something. Except, it was a totally fake image. Completely, although I think most people, well, many people did not realize that. What did you think when you saw it? I d actually, to be honest, I didn't think twice about it. I mean, I've never seen the Pope in anything but the white cassock, but I honestly thought like, oh, okay, like, I, I don't know what the circum, maybe it's cold in Rome. Wait, you really thought it was real? Yeah, I, I mean, at did. first, yeah. I was just like, oh, wow, that's, I haven't seen him in anything like that. New gear. <laughs> so it was generated by a program called Mid Journey, which um, takes prompts from people and can spit out images of celebrities. And the Pope has a lot of images floating around that it can train its algorithm on. I, I thought it was fake, not because the Pope was wearing a puffer jacket. Like that seems totally plausible to me. But he's like, he looks sort of like he, his posture makes him look like he's like 25, not 86. Yeah. Like he looks yeah. like he's walking to the gym and it's cold out and he's carrying a water bottle. And that seemed a little fake to me. As soon as I saw the pectoral cross was outside the jacket, I was like, oh, Pope Francis would never be that ostentatious about his jewelry. That's true. <laughs> I was like, this is probably. I was fake. like, that's cool. <laughs> That looks really cool. It did look really cool. So um, maybe it could be inspiration for uh, Pope Francis in the future. But I, I wanted to bring this story because it does raise a lot of interesting questions. Because on the one hand, this is just a simple like AI made a picture of the Pope and it went viral for some reason. But there are questions about why it went viral to begin with. Yeah. I mean, actually, as I was sort of watching the commentary on it, it felt to me like it felt to me like the dress from 2015, where there was the question, it was that a woman's uh, a wedding dress, but but not for a bride, and it was striped, and some people thought it was gold and white, and some people thought it was blue oh, yes. and black, yes. which became like this obsession. It was blue and black, but I only see it as gold and white, e even though I can't even, that. yeah, I'm trying to remember. I felt very strongly about this at the time. Everyone feels very strongly yeah. about and this. And people time. feel strongly about this Pope Francis image. Absolutely, and absolutely. It, and do you think it, that says more about us than the image? I mean, I think that people's reaction to it for me that was the most interesting thing like the number of people especially gen z and i'd say millennials who were like this is the coolest thing ever and it sort of spoke to them about how they understand this pope like this is a pope who's like not afraid to break with tradition is sort of modern and one tweet that i saw was like i thought it was real because he's trying to be more socially relevant and i was like that's actually not the kind of social relevance yeah. <laughs> that he's trying to have he's trying like to i look like the kids <laughs> That's awesome. Like, but That's still, like I thought relevance. it spoke to something positive that, that this woman saw. Well, and like, I don't know. The Pope is just like a photogenic person to begin with. And there's like, mm. it's this mash of like very classical imagery. And anytime it does something, he does anything modern, right? Like if he, if someone comes to visit the Vatican, like the Harley Davidson Club or the Harlem Globetrotters, yeah. or he gets like a delegation of circus workers, like it's always, it always results in kind of a funny photo. It's like, oh, look, it's the Pope with this group or the Pope doing this. Like he's willing to allow himself to like use the power of image and, and also just be around any and all kinds of people. It makes this type of thing believable, I think. Now, I, I wonder if there are some people that see this and go, is this a little disrespectful, like asking, like creating like an AI generated image of a holy leader? Like, would you would you feel as comfortable if people were like, oh, make the Dalai Lama doing a funny thing? Um, I, I think some people might feel some discomfort around that idea. Yeah, I actually I actually did see some people commenting on that or, or referring to other religious leaders and saying, like, you're not allowed or you shouldn't be commenting on them or presenting them in this way. So why? Why would we do this to to, a, to the Catholic religious leader? Like, I don't think our maybe what part of what allows it is that it doesn't seem disrespectful. There doesn't seem to be any intent to make him look bad. It's like not undermining of his authority in any way. Yeah. There was an interview with the with the creator of the image, and he was very much saying, like, I didn't 
There was no harm meant by this. Yeah. I was just trying to make something funny that would make people laugh. <laughs> and there were recreational drugs involved, I believe, too. He was yeah. high, Some I strong believe. Ones. Yes. Some strong ones. Um, yes. And drugs. thought, I think it'd be funny to see the Pope in a puffer jacket. And it was funny. It did make people laugh. Um, I actually no. felt bad in the inter- that interview that he seemed sort of shaken up by the reaction. And I, I just felt like, oh, this poor guy, like... I- I don't know if he's heard from people that are mad, but I think I hope he doesn't feel that way anymore because No, it's hard to pin it on this one guy, but I think it does open a whole realm of like ethical questions about like, you know, I wouldn't feel awesome if there were like fake images of me floating around the internet. And I'm sure we're not that far off from the future until that's just like default where like, you know, we have we all have pictures of us doing crazy things floating around the Internet. And uh, I think we'd feel personally one way. But for some reason, if someone has like a certain level of celebrity or we consider them like a public figure and therefore it's like it's game fair game for parody yeah. or speech or something like that. And this one is harmless and, and funny. But like you can imagine a scenario where it isn't harmless. Like no. the thing that came to mind for me is like. What if a Russian created a fake image of Pope Francis, like hugging the patriarch and use that to like propagandize the war effort or something like there Absolutely. are very much darker avenues that this could go down. I feel I feel and I feel like inevitably that's where we're going unless and some sort of unless some sort of laws in this country and other countries are, are put in place to stop that. But I it doesn't seem likely that that will occur. Genie is out of the bottle in a lot it of does ways. does feel like it seems. that, yeah. Um, what do you think this reveals more like on a deeper level about Pope Francis. You you've mentioned before like he understands the power of image. You think do you think not this obviously wasn't conscious on his part, but do you think he it's intentional when he has the pictures of him with Spider-Man or like he knows what he's doing? I think I do. I think that uh because he's been doing it the whole 10 years. I think he is the first to really have to deal with this and the first to understand that there are there's an international audience in front of you at front of him at all times because everybody's got a cell phone, everybody's on social media. And I think he's really taken advantage of that to sort of make every public moment that he has a potentially apostolic moment. So yeah, I think I think as much as there are many other things we could point to as some of his most important accomplishments so far, I would say this is going to be one of them that I hope that Future, future religious leaders uh, sort of re- remember that how much you can accomplish just by a simple word or gesture in public because there are always, that's always everyone that is potentially seeing that. Everyone in the whole world. Could potentially see anything at any given time. I, I feel like it works because it's not that the Pope understands like the power of image and maybe he does. I think it's more like he is just radically authentic. And is will like like I don't know if you've seen like these TikToks that will go viral of like a super elderly couple being interviewed about something, and it's it's always it's like either really cute or really funny, and it's not because those people understand how algorithms work and that this is going to be like fire content. It's but it's because like anytime someone like lets their guard down in a real vulnerable way, and it's it's real and you can sense that like it is in and of itself, viral content. And the Pope is someone who is sort of like not afraid to be himself and carry out his ministry and not get caught up in how is this going to be perceived. And so that's sort of what I think allows people to to connect with a lot of these these images. Yeah, I appreciate that because I think you could take what I said as like he's using a sort of artifice, which I agree. I don't think I don't think there's a lot of artifice in what he does at all. I think it is very sort of self-revelatory and just open. On the other hand, the AI-generated photo was entirely artifice. Um, so, listeners, did you see that photo? Did you think it was real? Because um, I, I certainly heard from a lot of people who did and colleagues who did that kind of just scrolled past it without a second thought. So uh, let us know. We'll be chatting about this in our Facebook group this week. So you can find that at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. And now stick around for our conversation with Sister Jean Delore Schmidt. Joining us from Chicago is Sister Jean Dolores Schmidt. Sister Jean is the chaplain to the men's basketball team at Loyola University Chicago and the author of Wake Up With Purpose, What I Learned in My First Hundred Years. Welcome to Jesuitical, Sister Jean. Thank you so much for inviting me today. 
It's it's so good to see you. I I just want to start by saying like I am uh, I have always been so proud to know you, but especially after you became a superstar, it, it makes my heart beam every time I can tell people that I was in Sister Jean's Tuesday night prayer group uh, in her dorm. Um, I, and those are like some of my fondest memories of being able to share that time together at Loyola. So it's so good to see you. Thank you. It's good to see you too, Zach. And it's given me such hope that you know I've I've yet to write a book in my life. And I know for you to write your first book at 100 gives me hope that I've still got some time <laughs> left to make that happen. Well, people, people ask me why I waited so long. Why did you? Well, to go back to 2018 for the um, basketball tournament, the NCAA, when we had that, there were about six men called me and said, oh, you should write a book, Sister Jean. I said, no way. I said, I don't have time for that. I have a full-time job at Loyola. I want to talk to the students there. I could never write a book. But I, I said, well, uh, I'll think about it, but I should talk to my congregation and to my employer to see if I can do this. And so they both said, go for it, Sister Jean. So here I am at right now 103 writing a book. Well, we're glad you did. It is a delightful book. Yeah, it's so good. It was such a treat for me because, you know, I, I met you in your 90s and, you know, I'd, I'd heard some of these stories before, but, it, you know, to be able to like sit down and spend time in hearing some of these, it was a real treat for me and for, I mean, I'm sure all of your readers. Um, and your life spans so many, you know, historical moments, uh, including the Ramblers 2018 run to the final four. But um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about that I don't know if we've ever talked about is... Um, the Second Vatican Council, because that was such a big time of change in the church. And you write about it in your book and um, you kind of recall what it was like to uh, stop wearing a habit. Um, but I just meant, what was like the atmosphere like in the church? Was it, um, were people excited for change, afraid of change? I would say they were afraid of change. And it all depended on how a, a pastor presented the changes. I remember that my dad lived in a Terra Linda at that time in California. And he went to uh, a little church on the top of the hill right near him. And the pastor said to the people, we're just going to learn one thing at a time, one thing every Saturday or Sunday, whichever you come to mass. And that was very reassuring to them that it was not just all put on them right away. And I always thought that he was very wise to do that, and I know my dad accepted it. And for example, he wanted to go to another church one day, to Mount Carmel Church uh, down the road, and he said, I want you to see something. So just before the communion distribution, this nun went up to the altar, and he poked me, and he said, that's what I wanted you to see, that a woman is there on the altar and helping the priest. Isn't that great? And I thought, well, for a man that old, that was really wonderful. Wow. And what was your experience of it? Because you had been a sister for almost three decades, I think, when the Vatican Council happened. Right. Um, so how did it change your religious life? And were you excited about it? Or did you have any fears? Oh, I think we all had a, a little fears. We weren't sure what was going to happen because such a thing had never happened before. And there, there was fear. And when we, when the, the Holy Father said that it would be nice for us to be as our foundresses were, that, that was something no one said before, too. So our foundress was just Mary Frances Clark, was a, an Irish girl, dressed as an Irish girl. And actually, she never wore a habit, even though the habit was ado adopted. But it was hard for some sisters to change into contemporary clothes because they were old enough not to have even worn short skirts in their lives. And now they were going into a short skirt after having a long habit. And it was difficult. But what our congregation, the Sisters of Charity, Blessed Virgin Mary did, we said that if you want to change into a habit, you may do so. We'll all learn how to do it. If you don't want to change, you want to stay in the habit, that's fine. You can do that. Well, the younger people 
were all for the change. And it didn't take them very long to cut their habits and make suits out of them, black skirts and black tops, and it just went kind of wild. And then the rest of us went. I remember that I really wanted to change almost right away to be an example to the people my age. But I was living with 150 young nuns, and the, pres the president of the congregation was afraid they'd all want to change because Sister Jean was changing. <laughs> and so I, I, was, I was told, no, we'll have to wait. You'll have to wait. You've always been a trendsetter. So yeah. it's a very, very wise. Right now in the church, Pope Francis has brought a lot of change that a lot of young people are excited about. I'm curious, um, what's your assessment of how he's done so far? I think he's doing very well. I know he's being criticized by a lot of people, but I think that's because they're, they're not open to change. And you have to be open to change. And it's not just the young people who are, it's the older people who are more open than even the 50-year-olds. And uh, I, I don't quite understand that, but, but that's all right. I think some of the changes he's made are, are good. And I get a little message from him every day on his mission, what, he, what he's planning and what we should be doing. And today we were supposed to be examining ourselves about Lent. How are we doing? He's very updated. It isn't, you know, it isn't just, Rules. He never talks about rules or regulations. He just talks about change and doing things. I think the way he presents it is very well done. And he, I know he has to convince the bishops first. And uh, the bishop, some bishops, like other people, don't want to change. So it's it's that back and forth. But it seems to be peaceful to me. You mentioned before that you had 150 people in your convent, which is hard to imagine today. You've lived through and witnessed a huge shift in religious life, a, a decline in religious life in the United States. And I'm curious, you know, how you managed that and what it did to your spirituality. We had 150 every year at um, Loyola getting their degrees. And um, some of them remained in the community when all those changes happened because they thought we were doing the right thing. Some left the community because they thought we weren't moving fast enough for them. And then some left because we weren't moving fast enough for them. And it, it was very difficult for some young people. And so, but as time went on during the years, those numbers did not remain. They kept going down. And um, part of that is because there are so many options for women today that I think that's what distracted them from religious life. And in social activities that they have joined, there's no permanent commitment. And I think young people sometimes are afraid of permanent commitment, especially when everybody's living so long. In the same way with people in marriages, the as you know, the separations or divorces are higher now than they ever were before. Sister Jean, I'm wondering what you would say to uh, a young person today that was considering religious life, knowing that young people are, are afraid of commitments. You are you're someone who has both lived a long time and stayed active in your vocation and in your ministry. Um, what would you counsel them? Well, if I, if I see someone and believe that he or she has a a vocation for what they say they are, want to do in life, I, I tell them that they need to do what communities and what other seminarians do is have a come and see and to spend like a weekend or more than that with them because God calls in different ways. When I think of how I was called, when I say that I was in third grade and about eight years old and knew then that I wanted to be a sister, that sister who was my teacher had a lot of influence in me, on me and on other boys and girls for what they were going to do because she told us when we were in third grade 
that we were not too young to be thinking about what we wanted to do. And I thought, I saw her and I thought, oh, she was a sister and a teacher, so maybe I could do that. So as I say in the book, every day I prayed to God and tried to make him do my will, as it were, and say, please tell me I want to be a BVM sister. And I never changed my mind. But no, no girl ever talked about being a doctor because we didn't know. They were all doctors were all men that we knew. So, you know, they didn't think about women. Well, I can't imagine that you, you thought could see yourself ending up the chaplain to a college basketball team when you when you first joined though I know you always love sports let's start by going back to 2018 and and hearing about what that experience was like for you to to travel with the ramblers to the final four well well it's it's really great and of course you said that I'm interested in sports I've been that way all my life my mom and dad were great football fans and that was unusual for a woman in those days to be talking about football and making bets on teams and stuff like that, you know. My, my mom was ahead of her time in a lot of ways. When I got to high school, St. Paul's High School in San Francisco, they had a basketball team, a varsity team, and the team that today we call a club team. I knew I couldn't be on the varsity because I didn't have any experience, but I was on the club team. But basketball was for women at that time was very different. It was more of a passing game, and it was a slow game. <clears throat> when I played for four years, 33 to 37, um, the court was divided into three, so it was very slow. But when 38 was changed to half court, so it became a little faster. And then the 50s was changed full court for women because they realized that women could play basketball that way. When I went to my second school, which was in St. Charles, North Hollywood. It was the wealthiest school in the San Fernando Valley. And so when I saw they didn't have um, sports, I said to the principal, I, I think that we need to have a sports program. And she said, well, you have to ask the pastor. So I went to the pastor, and I was teaching eighth grade at that time. I went to the pastor and asked him, and he said, well, if you take care of it, you can have it. I said, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of it. So that's the way we began, very simply. But actually, we began with basketball, with the CYO, which was a Catholic youth organization there. We got into the tournament right away, both boys and girls. Then we also had um, track, and we had ping pong, and yo-yo. Yo-yo. I remember Sister, you were you were coach of the yo-yo team back Sister in the Jean, day. you are five foot, which is the same height as me. So I'm assuming you're a point guard, or what were you playing? Well, with my place on the court, yeah. we had in the middle of the court were two sides and two centers. And like yourself, I, you would have been in the same position then. Um, I was a, a side and it was my point when I got the ball, I had to throw it to the center. She had to throw it to the forward. Only the forward could make baskets. Mm -hmm. We had to stay within it. So that made it a slow game. Yeah, it's crazy how different the rules were back then. I'm glad they changed it so it's, so it's oh, all the so, same now. So am I. Oh, it is. It is the same, yes. Sister Jean, why do you think sports is such a, an ability to bring people together. I'm always thinking that maybe like the church or religion could learn something from sports. Oh, I think they could too. And I, you know, I, <clears throat> I pray with our team all the time before a game and regardless of their religious profession, they listen to the prayer. And I have to say, sometimes it's not as holy as it should be, <laughs> but, but uh, it's, uh, I say, to them with the scouting report, you know, what I give them to watch out for certain fellas in the other, in the opponent team, uh, because I've done my homework and looked to see what they did in games before and just that. But uh, we pray and ask God to, uh, for both teams, that we don't have injuries, that we play with great sportsmanship. 
we pray that the referees can see and <laughs> and and uh, call the plays with equity. I told the referees one time I thought they needed another guy on the court because they're all getting older and these these young people are getting faster, <laughs> and so they could miss calls. They they listen to me, but not always do what I say. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes the referees ask me for a blessing before they go to. But I do bless the team's hands before they go out on the last warm up. I love that you, you told you told a story about how that started with um, Milton Doyle, who was having a, a shooting slump, that's and, he, and right. he went to you, right? Right. He came and he said, uh, "Do you think you bless my hands, Sister Jean?" And I said, absolutely. So then I did that. And then one by one, they said, could you bless our hands, Sister Jean? So that was in, that's included in our prayer. Well, they noticed that it worked, right? Once Milton kind of got out of a shooting slump after you did that. Oh, he did. And he was in a bad, it was really bad. He was a senior wow. at that time. He was so good before he, he saved us in the first um, and, uh, conference we played in, in the Horizon League. And he made a three that knocked everybody else out, knocked the team right out of the conference. Wow. So, and do you so, think? Um, do you think God cares who wins in sports? Was he rooting oh, for the Ramblers that year? Uh, I always want him. To, I want God to know that we're playing at that time. I th I think he he listens to us sometimes, and sometimes it's not right for us to win. So, you know, that's one thing when Zach asked the question about about the church. You know, the, the, and teaching people, everything is not a win in your life. So the losses have to be experienced too. But you have to learn how to take those. You can't be down in the dumps all the time. You, you, that's past, and so you have a new day coming. So that's what you have to think about. And I think that parents today of younger children have to be... Um, a little careful about the way they push them because they think they should win all the time and not lose. Parents forget there is a lesson lost by being learned by being uh, by losing. So um, maybe the parents need a little workshop before games because <laughs> because you don't find college parents doing that. You know that, yeah. that by that time they've learned. Mm -hmm. Well, can you? Um... Just like tell us what it was like in 2018 at the Final Four on that crazy run, um, sort of to become like this, to have all of the world looking at Loyola and, and learning about who Sister Jean was at that time. Well, I was serendipitous to that. The team in Porter did all the work out in the courts. <laughs> and so it, it was it was so much fun. I I relived that, that whole thing so often even more than when it happens every year. And so when when we broke, when we got out of the first bracket and then into the second, and, oh, when Dante made that shot, that you could almost hear that ball drop into that bass, slice into that basket. I watched that, I watched that replay when we beat Miami at the, with that buzzer beater. When, right. I'm, when I feel sad, I pull up that clip. It makes me happy again. <laughs> it, is, it is so much fun. It was so much fun. And we had a lot of alums there at the game, and we had a lot of students who came, even though um, we were not in spring break. They, they, <laughs> and then the next game, if you recall, was where Clayton Custer got the ball, dashed down the court, and threw that ball up into, into the basket. And it went in, jumped out, and jumped in again. And when he came over and I hugged his sweaty body, I said, Clayton, I didn't think that was going to go in. He said, neither did I, Sister Jean. <laughs> and then when they got into the Sweet 16, the first thing they said to me after Tom Hitcho had um, pushed me onto the court, I, they said, Sister Jean, we broke your bracket. And I said, <laughs> keep breaking it. Yeah, because you, you only had them going to the Sweet 16. Yeah, I know. I know because I thought that would be great if we did that. <laughs> oh my god! And then, then we just kept kept moving, and it was so much fun. I remember when we came back, we had police escort from the airport to to Loyola. There were enough 
almost enough um, reporters waiting for us there with, with our fans to interview the team. The reporters, were, one of them said to me, Sister Jean, all your guys know how to talk. And I said, oh, they do. That's really good. And so I, had to t- I wanted to tell the faculty that, which I did, because the faculty has a lot to do with that. Well, you've had to talk to a lot of reporters too, and one of one of the things you write about in your book is is kind of the experience of becoming a celebrity and how how you relate to that fame. And I was struck by the fact that I don't know. I feel like some women religious might try to downplay it and be like, "Oh no, I'm not that famous," or like a little bit false humility. But you you don't seem very um, you seem very open to fame and what it can bring you. So can you talk about how how you approach your celebrity? Well, I, I think that people began to be my fans because I was connected with Loyola, of course, and then because I, I was old, because I'm a nun, <laughs> because I'm a sister, and that, that was unique for a lot of people to know that a, a sister was doing this, and um, being a chaplain even, that, that was new to people. But the celebrity part, um, people would say to me, has it gone to your head? No, it hasn't gone to my head. I, I just think that what I do, I do for God, for my congregation, and for um, Loyola. Seeing those reporters was fun for me. Talking to you is fun for me, too. Uh, I just enjoy telling everybody about what we do. And I, I believe in, that in my book, when I say it, what I've learned in a hundred years, that um, this will help people. I'm getting letters from all over from people I don't know, from people I do know, people I taught. Um, I talked to an alum from Mundelein College just yesterday. She just had finished reading my book. She called Loyola and wanted to talk to me. So. She was. Did she? Did I remember her? Of course, I remembered her. I could tell her where she was, where what, where she was from, what hall she lived in, and that she lived in the hall when I was uh, a, a, a head resident there. So now she's going to come to see me next week, and we're going to talk over about thirty years. Wow. I mean, and that's so great that like you're sort of the the celebrity has been able to like connect you with people. And you write in the book that you think part of why people were were so interested is because it reminded them of their connection with God a little bit. Yeah, because they tell me like I had um, just this morning, I read a letter that this woman told me she was having a hard time going to church now. And so were her children. And that's making her angry that she's not going to church. So when I write to her, I'm going to say, don't worry about your children. When they need God, they're going to call on them. And I firmly believe that, that young people haven't given up God. They've probably turned their heads for some reason. The Catholic Church has to do things that the way young people want them done, like you know, if they want guitar music, that's what they want. Have a mass that has that. And if they want a, a book club, have the book club just for the young people because their ideas are different from the older people. Mm. I don't think there's anyone who's probably spent, like, been around young people and more groups of young people and cohorts of young people than you. I mean, today, I don't know if people know this, but your office is like literally right in the middle of the student center at Loyola. So you are in the mix of it still today. Why do you want to continue to do that? Well, first of all, I have, I'm glad you mentioned my office because it's prime property. Yeah. That's, That's the way I tell everybody. And the door is always open unless I'm talking confidentially to a student or to a faculty member, then we close our recording. We have a nice sign we put on the door, recording, please do not disturb. <laughs> so anyhow, why do I like this? Well, I, all my, I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be with young people. I wanted to make, be sure that young people were successful. And so often they put into little notes or letters or, or 
emails, you know, do you remember me? Of course I remember them. And it gives me a, a nice thrill to hear from them. And now that I have the book out, I'm hearing from more of them. And I have kept in touch with some because some of them have sent their grandchildren here to Loyola from California to Loyola because I taught them in eighth grade. And that, that's a real thrill for me to talk to their children. Thank God for your memory, because I can barely remember what I was doing in 2019. And you, your book starts in 1919. And picking up on what Zach said about how you've you've been through generations of young people. So you, I'm, I'm sure, have an idea of like the things that all young people share. But is there anything about our the current, the students you've been working with in the past couple of years? Like, what are the big questions they're asking about, about God, about the church, about life? Like, what are kind of the common struggles you've been hearing recently? Well, it all depends on who they are. But many times I tell them that... Um, when I, when I was young, I had a lot of questions, too. And one, one of the questions I asked my dad was, um, what, what does eternity really mean? Because I used to think, you know, well, heaven's going to be etern eternity. And what, that, when I say that word, I said to him, it scares me because I don't know what to do all that time. And so he said to me, well, you know, eternity means that there is no end. And I want you to know that if the whole world was a ball of lead and God sent a little sparrow out each day just to flip its wing on that ball of lead, eventually that ball of lead would wear out. But eternity is longer than that. I thought that was a good ex explanation. In, but God, he said, is going to find a lot of things for you to do in heaven. You don't stop working, he said. God will find things in heaven. And I thought that was pretty neat, too, because I love what I do now. So I probably will love what I do in heaven, too. And you, you've had a taste of eternity more than most people in your yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. And here, here I am now at this age. and Life is almost like an eternity except that I, I enjoy it. But I, I just love talking to young people to watch them develop and to grow and see what they do. And I, when I speak with parents when they come for orientation, I tell them that uh, your son or daughter is going to, there's going to be a real change in them from August when we begin classes to they come home for Christmas. And that's, that sometimes frightens the parents, but you, you have to let go. Um, it's like telling the parents about going to church. They want them to be present in the church. And I say, you can't push too hard. You have to, This has to come from your daughter or your son. And a number of them do come back while they're at Loyola because, as Zach can tell you, our liturgies are fabulous every Sunday. Yep. And our 9 o'clock mass, 9 p.m. mass, is packed. Sister Jean, I would catch you sometimes at the 7.30 a.m. mass at the Jesuit residence, and then later at the 9 p.m. mass, yes. at the student mass. I was always in awe of your of your energy. My One of my favorite stories is to tell just about your work ethic is um, one day I was walking down the street, um, and I... And in the distance, I I see uh, a little old lady carrying a bunch of groceries, and I get closer, and I'm like, Sister Jean, what are you doing? You're just walking back to your room at Regis, and I was like, Please give me these. I can't believe people have passed you and let you um, carry these all these blocks. Um, but you you've always been on the move and always on the go, and I thank God all the time that I was blessed enough to you know be at Loyola and around some of those liturgies and peoples, but most importantly to get to know you. Um, so, so thank you for all you've done in my life and so many people's lives and all the people that are going to read this book and learn some valuable, valuable life lessons. Um, but before we let you go and wrap up, we do have one final question for you uh, that we ask all of our guests, um, which is, if you could canonize one person, uh, living or dead, uh, Catholic or not, fictional or real, 100 years old or zero, <laughs> uh, who would it be and why? 
Oh my goodness, that that's that's a I, I could have a big list for you right away. <laughs> if, if if you have to pick just one for now, let me say that I I would think very highly. I think very highly of Sister Anita Gannon. Now, she was a president of Mundelein for seventeen years. She was a an active woman. She was the first woman on many many um, committees where there were only men. And she had to stand up for women all the time. She was uh, appointed by um, President Nixon to be on the National Women's uh, Committee. And she was uh, on the uh, Women's Rights Committee in the state of Illinois. And she just knew how to accept change. She knew how to deal with people as the president. And... I would say she would be a good good candidate for that. All right. So Saint Sister Anne Ida Gannon BVM. Who I just Googled and she lived to be hundred and three. You guys she, you guys have the BVMs, some secret man. Yeah. Yeah. She, she died at a hundred and five. hundred and five. Oh, so yeah. young people listening, if you want to live a long time. Become a BVM. Yep, become a BVM. <laughs> Um, one more time. The book is Wake Up With Purpose, What I've Learned in My First Hundred Years, uh, written by Sister Jean. Uh, thank you so much for chatting with us today. Yes, and I, I was assisted by Seth Davis. And, with, by, and by Seth Davis, who's a great yes. basketball reporter and writer. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. He, he, he was the one who, I keep saying, pushed me, but gently. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God for him, um, because the book's great. Um, thanks thank so much, you. Sister Jean. Well, thank you, Zach. Thank you, Ashley. And I was delighted to chat with you today. Did you find it? What you were looking for? Shuffling through broken glass. Are you cut up? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ashley, we are coming down the wire with Lent. Uh, Holy Week is coming up real soon. And I don't know about you, but I get to this point and feel like I've always done less than I thought I was going to do, especially in regards to my prayer life. Yeah. And obviously, we shouldn't put so much pressure on ourselves. But when I do want to pray more, I like going back to things that I know, uh, that are comfortable, that are familiar. And one of those things is the rosary. Yeah, and that's why we're super excited to tell you about one of our sponsors this week, Daily Rosary Meditations with Dr. Mike Schurschlicht. It is a podcast where you can learn how to meditate and establish a daily habit of prayer while discovering truths of the Catholic faith, all while praying the rosary. Yeah, and it's the fastest growing community praying the rosary with family and friends around the world. Yeah, I love the rosary. I love the like traditional mysteries that come with it, the meditations that come with it. But I love this podcast because it also has a sort of original uh, meditation each day, too, that uh, introduces some topic around the Catholic faith. So you can join them every day for scripture, meditation, and a rosary all in under 20 minutes. The meditations are perfect for your daily commute or your morning coffee. You can find them in your favorite podcast app by searching Daily Rosary Meditations or on the web at dailyrosary.net. That's www.dailyrosary.net.
No parish announcements this week, so we can go straight to As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our life this week. What do you have, Zach? So uh, I was finding God this week at jury duty. I know, (laughs) and not what I think most people expected to hear um, when they hear someone talk about jury duty. And I will say I was very sad to have not been selected uh, as a juror. Uh, I didn't even get interviewed, so I just kind of sat in a room all day. Um, I was super eager. I was desperate to get picked. But uh, the beginning was super exciting. Um, they gave the speech about the importance of uh, jurors on our criminal justice system and how serious we should all take it. And I'm sitting nodding along. And then they introduced this um, video that was done by this group called the Perception Institute. Um, and it was all about implicit bias and how that is sort of um, a huge problem, especially among jury trials in the United States and also, you know, in other parts of your life. And they sort of introduced it by showing like, oh, okay, here's this picture. How many triangles are in this picture? And they're like, most people say anywhere from like three to 40, but the answer is actually zero because none of the lines are connected, but your brain just fills in those lines because of your experience with triangles. And then they sort of extend the metaphor. It's like, okay, are you bringing that towards groups of people that are different from you or that are like you um, into the courtroom? And I was, I thought, I thought it was a really well done video. Uh, that I think set the stage pretty well for jury duty. But as I was sitting there for the rest of the day and thinking about uh, this this week's episode, I was like, huh, I wonder if I've got any issues with like implicit bias in my prayer life. Um, you know, on the one hand, like obviously like it can affect your prayer life if you have all these unconscious biases towards group, different groups of people. Um, that's one way. But also if you've got sort of unconscious biases towards um who God is and how God works in the world, um, those can be things that like inhibit your prayer life. Yeah. When you first told me this, my first reaction was like, well, of course we do, because like God is so completely other than us that we have to like use these metaphors to try to even like grasp what God is. And and I was like, God being so distant and other (laughs) is an implicit bias that we have that, you know, the incarnation is Mm -hmm. a complete refutation of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so what I thought about when I, you know, was examining my own implicit biases toward God and how I would get over it, you know, I think the analogy to the real world makes sense. Like you have a stereotype about a group of people and then you meet an individual from that group and they break down that stereotype and you're like oh i was thinking about a group in a completely wrong way and like the great thing about christianity is like we are invited to that individual personal encounter with the person of jesus <laughs> like think about this as um sort of a logic problem to solve at first where it's like okay what are the uh preconceived ideas i have about god it's like oh is he punitive is he judgmental is he Mercy, like, what are the things that I ascribe to God? And um, we were talking to Father Eric this week, and he was sort of nudging me in the direction you're talking about, which is like, this isn't like a head game to solve. Like, you, prayer is ultimately a, a two way relationship. So you are like, encount- like encountering someone in this conversation the way that, like, you do in real life. Like, encounter is what breaks down a lot of these things. And I was uh, sad because I was like, I thought I was close to solving the, <laughs> the logic puzzle in my brain. Yeah. Um, because that's, that's, that's a pattern you... I have. Like I, I try to make prayer too much of a head game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I think a lot of us do. So you're not alone in that. I'll get us out of here. Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes with production assistance from Kevin Jackson and Christopher Spielman. Our sound engineer is Kevin Christopher Robles. Faith Formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Lowshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week. 